This podcast is produced by the Center for Deployment Psychology at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. In addition, references to any specific companies, products, processes, or services does not necessarily constitute or imply endorsement by the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Welcome to CDP's podcast, Practical for Your Practice. We give you actionable intel to support what you do. One colleague to another. Hey, everybody. This is Andy Santanello, Senior Military Behavioral Health Psychologist, and welcome to Practical for Your Practice. And we've got the whole crew today. Hey, Jenna. How's it going, Andy? It's going all right. Hey, Kevin. Hey, how are you? I'm great. I am uh, extra great because I've got my friend and colleague, Dr. Wyatt Evans, with us today. Hey, Wyatt, welcome to Practical for Your Practice. Hello, all. Thank you for having me. Really glad yeah. to be here and have this conversation with you. Yeah, we uh, we continue to be successful in looping you back into CDP-related activities. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm glad for it. Work in the network. That's right. So we asked you to come on the podcast because we wanted to chat with you a little bit about the the work you're doing with resilience and psychological flexibility training. And you and I were having a conversation, I think it was over email about a month ago. And one of the interesting things about that conversation that you were kind of telling me about was that the resilience literature and some of the sort of key psychological factors in, you know, that, that contribute to a psychological resilience and the principles of psychological flexibility seem to be kind of merging. They're, they're kind of getting to the same place. And I wanted to chat with you about that. So what, where are those sort of points of convergence that you've noticed? Can I be annoying too, and actually have maybe start with like a definition of the, just in case people aren't real familiar with psychological flexibility, um, what we mean by that. So maybe start off by even kind of grounding us there. That's a great idea. We can be, we can be psychologically flexible with the way. Can we you be a little more flexible, Annie? And can we start by defining things? That'd be great. Yeah. So maybe that's a great place. To, maybe a place to start is what is resilience? How would you define resilience? These are both really good questions. And I don't know that we have a clear cut answer. Um, that's kind of the, I will answer your question, I promise. But that's kind of the history of um, the, the resilience literature is it's been marked by just a ton of inconsistency, multiple diff, uh, different conceptualizations. Um, and it's really made it hard to understand what resilience is, um, and, but also uh, made it really hard to build any sort of training program for resilience enhancement for, for vulnerable populations to include military personnel. When I, when I, when I tell you what resilience is, um, I'm telling you what I, what I think it is, where I think the, the, the literature has landed, and I'm actually going to give us credit for it, Andy. Back in 2020, um, you and I did a presentation for CDP Presents, and um, you know we 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 said that um, well, this is actually really the remember the first time uh, the first time I remember writing it down in a public facing context. Um, but resilience is, is the ability to adeptly select the most workable behavior for values aligned. Um, uh, endeavors in a given context. 
Um, and so resilience may be bolstered by like refining an individual's ability to select the most adaptive behavior for task completion from that large contextually sensitive behavioral repertoire. And that definition is a very practical definition. And I imagine, you know, as you talked about the different ways that resilience has been conceptualized and talked about, there are probably other definitions that are not quite as practical and actionable. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There's a lot of definitions out there that really point to very specific, very small in terms of effect size factors that enhance resilience or very impractical, uh, vague definitions like the ability to bounce back mm. after a, a trauma or a stressor. Um, and those don't offer us much in terms of uh, how to bolster or, or cultivate resilience. Whereas this sort of psychological flexibility informed definition offers us a, a direct inroad to resilience enhancement. And so how would, what would be a, you know, sort of a basic definition of psychological flexibility, which you're kind of working definition of that? Yeah. So in, in this context, um, the, the way I'm going to think about it, the context being resilience enhancement and resilience enhancement training is the ability to remain aware of and engaged with values aligned action and, and to engage processes such as acceptance or openness to experience in the service of continuing that, that, that values aligned uh, task or that values aligned mission or achieving values-based goals. So now, how would you define? <laughs> so, so the word values. I mean, it's mm -hmm. so, it's it's got different connotations to it, and I know the way that you're using it has a very specific meaning. And so, when you say values aligned actions, yeah, you know, what do you mean there? So, values are qualities of behavior. Um, they're the way we want to show up in the world the way we want to be. Now, each branch of the military has their own values that um, sort of uh, new recruits are sort of indoctrinated into, but our values um, uh, development starts, you know, from the beginning. You know, we, we learn it from our caregivers. We learn it from our culture. We learn it from our community. You know, the values are the qualities that we want to, to manifest in our lives, to be known for, and to have as sort of the guideposts for all of our behaviors across contexts. Okay. So, you know, at cutting across different situations that may show up the kind of human being that you want to be and the way you'd like to act if you could choose. Mm -hmm. You mentioned acceptance in the definition of psychological flexibility. How does that sort of fit into kind of that sort of chosen life, being able to, you know, be and manifest the qualities you want to manifest mm -hmm. in terms of values? You know, you know what I'm saying? Because like that seems like a big part of the definition that you had, had mentioned there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think acceptance and all that entails is such an essential part of that definition. And to kind of continue tying these two concepts together, I think it's such an essential part of resilience. It opens up a whole side of that repertoire that was otherwise inaccessible 
when we had only sort of control oriented, uh, you know, coping or response strategies. So, you know, I, I like I like the the saying, and I, I don't exactly know who to give credit to, but the saying that pain is inevitable and suffering is a choice, the choice we make when we're unable or unwilling to accept the existence of that pain. Um, so when we think about life, certainly when we think about military life, certainly when we think about, you know, the uh, life one experiences inside of a, a combat or operational environment, pain, stress, even trauma are I don't want to say inevitable, but very, 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 very likely. And the ability to accept those experiences as they are without judgment, without undue, unworkable uh, reactions, and continue on in a values-based, values-aligned way, I think is in one way of thinking about it, what resilience is really all about. And that's a much different way of thinking about it, I think, than the sort of the ability to bounce back. I mean, even inside mm -hmm. of that metaphor, I'm thinking about a rubber ball, mm -hmm. like the bounce backiness or ability to do that is really intrinsic to the material that ball is made out of, you know? So if you don't happen to be, you know, made of rubber, you're not going to bounce back. But you know, mm -hmm. the way you're talking about it sounds like these are potentially skills that could be trained mm -hmm. and improved. Yeah. So I think when we start to think about intervening on resilience or enhancing resilience, um, we've got a couple opportunities. We have the repertoire, right? Um, so enhancing the repertoire of, of responses of coping skills. And then we've got that context sensitivity. And so we can enhance context sensitivity as well, allowing people to more adeptly in a more workable way um, select the response strategy that is most effective in that context, given you know the the, the uh, values aligned direction one wants to head. And so this is probably just a, uh, an opportunity to point to an example. So. Um, for for those of us who who work with you know military personnel or veterans and um, have probably heard these stories of, of combat, of firefights, of life and death situations. I'm going to submit that in that context, emotional suppression is really, really, really effective. Absolutely. If you're under fire, you can't feel your feelings. However, those of us who work with trauma survivors and work to you know, relieve the suffering that is PTSD also understand that emotional suppression is far from a universally workable strategy. In a different context, that is going to perpetuate suffering rather than perpetuate survival or, or, or facilitate survival. So we're doing things a little bit backwards. <laughs> I introduced you, but I didn't ask anything about, you know, what you're doing with resilience and, um, you know, it, uh, kind of um, the, the work you're doing in your professional life also. And so um, I know that this is a passion for you. It's something we've talked mm. about a bunch and you mentioned the webinar that you and I have done, you did, you and I did a little while ago. Mm -hmm. um, so, so tell, tell us a little bit about what you've been doing um, when it comes to resilience or, you know, what do you, what you've been working on? Um, mm -hmm. How is it showing up in your professional life? 
just to go back and offer a little bit of my perspective, my background on this, um, as an intern, really as a practicum student, so in my, my doctoral training, um, I just happened to be working with a lot of Vietnam-era veterans experiencing PTSD. And I saw how this had changed the course of their life. And, you know, in some cases, they ended up in my office, you know, only after maybe they were forced into retirement and their, uh, you know, their work or, or whatever they were doing to avoid thoughts and feelings uh, was no longer available to them. And so we engaged in really effective PTSD treatment. It, it, it changed the course of their lives. But the, the thought that I experienced um, in doing that work was, yes, but for how much life, right? How much do these folks have left in front of them? So I sort of worked backward from there. I found myself working with post 9-11 veterans uh, experiencing PTSD. And in that case, we were able to do effective treatment and change the course of, in some cases, the majority of their life. Um, but I still felt like I needed to get closer to the injury or um, closer to the event and you know, ensure or, or, or try to ensure that these folks had the highest quality of life, the greatest well-being for every minute of life possible. So then I found myself on my uh, postdoctoral fellowship working with active duty, um, mostly soldiers, and um, doing PTSD treatment. And in some cases, you know, the, the goal was to return to uh, return to duty and, and continue on with a long career. And that was, was even more fulfilling for me, but I still felt like I wanted to get closer. Except at this point, I'm right there next, you know, I'm right there next to the injury. In some cases, I'm seeing them within a month or two of the, the traumatic event. So what's closer? Well, I guess in a way, is getting out in front of it. How do we prevent the manifestation of PTSD in the aftermath of a, a traumatic event? Um, and that's what led me to, to, to this area, this work, and this project. So uh, currently, uh, in collaboration with um, the Strong Start Consortium and Consortium to Alleviate PTSD. Um, we're working on delivering a training intervention, if you will, uh, a training program that um, engages the psychological flexibility processes to promote resilience in active duty uh, military personnel. Um, so the co-PIs on this project are uh, Alan Peterson, um, the director of Strong Star and the Consortium to Alleviate PTSD, um, and just one of the foremost uh, experts in you know, uh, military mental health and PTSD. And then Dr. Eric Meyer, um, a friend and a colleague who is, I, I think, one of the foremost experts on um, acceptance and commitment therapy, which is the therapy that, that sort of engages, that, that is sort of founded on the psychological flexibility model, engages the psychological flexibility processes. And we put our heads together and developed this program. And it is our hope that, actually, if you want to, if you want to know about my dream, my dream is that one day this program will, I'm going to say it, replace the existing resilience enhancement programs um, in, in the DOD um, that are without 
a great deal of evidence and what evidence is there shows very small effect sizes, if any. So um, that, that's sort of my route to where we are now. Can you tell us a little bit about, and I, and I got to tell you, that ball analogy is still going in my head. And at some point I'm mm -hmm. going to articulate the, the difference between the, the ways the balls bounce. But with that training program that you're talking about, what are some of the components? Like if you're talking to the soldiers and you're, you know, just so the providers who are listening have a sense of like, what does this look like practically? Mm -hmm. what, what, what are the elements of it? Because um, I'd be really interested to hear a little more of the ins and outs of it. And just to clarify, you said this is kind of pre-deployment. This is like a right a, a training right. before. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Um, so right now, with the group that we have um, that we're running this trial with, um, it just so happens that they're all sort of mid-career. Um, I think most have had one or more deployments already, um, but still have uh, you know maybe the majority even of their career out in front of them. Um, likely to experience some some sort of deployment again. Um, and so what that training looks like, um, currently it is, and, and this is, is likely to change over time as we gather data, but currently it's a two-day intensive workshop. Um, and it, and a provider who's familiar with acceptance and commitment therapy is going to go, oh, yeah, that's ACT. We're doing ACT today. Um, so uh, we do adapt some of the language, but the processes are really explicit. So we start with present moment contact, um, attentional training, if you will. That phrase didn't quite capture it, but um, it's, it's sort of uh, raising awareness of how rigidity in uh, attentional focus and reactivity to stimuli can actually inhibit situational awareness and, and decrease adaptability across contexts. Um, from there, we flow into um, some of the other processes, you know, offering kind of what I pointed to earlier, acceptance as an alternative to suppression, a possibly more workable alternative to suppression. Um, defusion. It is one of the core processes in acceptance and commitment therapy or acceptance and commitment training. Um, and it helps folks to sort of step back and, and you know, sort of identify thoughts as simply that thoughts. Technically, I think random firing of neurochemical impulses in the brain and sort of deliteralizing our thinking. Um, you know, our, 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 our military personnel and veterans seem to be really good at following rules and, and orders which makes sense in one context, but when we sort of reactively follow the orders given to us by our minds, we tend to find that that's far less workable, um, especially in less high stakes, high tempo environments. And that's just three of the six processes I could go on, but um, that kind of gives you a, a sense of what is inside of this training. Um, and, you know, we, we there's some didactic work, but again, as, as anybody who's practiced ACT or trained in ACT knows, it's very experiential, it's very hands-on. Um, it's a very different kind of experiential than a lot of our, our, uh, our participants are used to, um, but, but we lean into that awkwardness, we lean into that discomfort um, and, and try to really get a sense, you know, at, at the mind and body level, what it, 
these processes feel like. And so how is the study going? Where are you in the process at this point? So we started this at the most opportune time for research ever, very shortly before the COVID-19 <laughs> pandemic started. Um, so we have been slowed down considerably um, for a while. We, we just couldn't access our participants um, due to some of the policies you know, around you know, uh, gatherings and whatnot. Um, we really wanted to stick to in-person as opposed to going virtual, um, largely because some of that experiential work really is, in our opinion, an experience stronger when done in person. So, so all that to say, we are still in the process of delivering the intervention or delivering the training, gathering data, um, working out the kinks so that the, the training itself is still under development. Um, and, and really our goal is just to sort of establish the, the, the feasibility of this training and, and also the acceptability from the perspective of the service member participants. If we find that to be the case, you know, we, we hope to do a, a, a larger study in the future, wherein we'll actually look at over time the outcomes in terms of well-being, uh, psychosocial functioning. Um, so all that to say, we're still pretty early on, um, but we have a lot to look forward to. It's, it's good to know that because there's a I, I, there's a part of me that's sitting here going, okay, I can already think of a number of people <laughs> that could benefit from this, or mm -hmm. you know how where's the program running so I can send people or what? And I imagine some of our listeners are too. But it sounds mm -hmm. like really kind of the the rollout larger than a study is a, is a few years down the road. Yeah, but I think we're a few years out. It's certainly people who are are trained in ACT, especially, can probably already be thinking about how they can apply those principles with folks Absolutely. that maybe see that are approaching that, right? Absolutely. So, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and jump to just pointing at a couple of resources um, because I do think that um, there is room to go ahead and start implementing these processes with our, our, um, our patients, our clients, especially those who are, you know, currently serving. Um, so, we have um, the team that I mentioned just a moment ago. We do have a paper coming out in uh, uh, hopefully very soon in a, a special issue um, where we sort of outline how these processes um, might be engaged in, in the service of resilience enhancement. It's just a quick primer, but it's a place to start. I'll circle, circle back around to mentioning contextualscience.org and ACBS and ACT training in a minute. But I actually want to double back and point to one other resource that's not explicitly ACT, nor is it really even explicitly psychological flexibility as we understand it from sort of contextual behavioral science. But um, just last year, 2021, George Bonanno, highly recommend and highly recommend his book, The End of Trauma. Uh, let's see, it's actually The End of Trauma how the new science of resilience is changing how we think about PTSD. And the reason I come back and point to this specifically as a resource for implementing this uh, psychological flexibility intervention, Andy and I said back in 2020 that you know, resilience might be bolstered by refining the individual's ability to um, sort of uh, 
adeptly select the most adaptive behavior from that large contextually sensitive repertoire. In this book, and I got ridiculously excited as I was reading this, I, I'm, I'm sure it made no sense if you're reading, you know, like the end of trauma on the cover and I'm sitting there smiling and almost like giddy. Um, it, it made no sense, but it did to me. It makes so, sense to me. <laughs> being you know what? It probably makes sense to everybody here, right? <laughs> Maybe not to everybody, but certainly everybody here. But Dr. Manano points to, you know, sort of the culmination of all of his work on resilience in this resilience uh, enhancement process that he calls the flexibility sequence. And the flexibility sequence has three parts. Context sensitivity is number one. Repertoire is number two. And then feedback monitoring is number three. And so I'm like, we just said that. Didn't we just say that? And so this is sort of the, the super exciting sort of uh, confluence of or coming together of, you know, decades worth of resilience um, uh, resilient science and, and decades worth of psychological flexibility, contextual behavioral science landing in exactly the same place. So I, I just think that that, you know, is far from a coincidence. Um, even, even the perfect overlap of, of the terminology, I think, is far from a coincidence and lets us know that we've got multiple fields, multiple branches of psychological science pointing to the same place, the same, um, same route to resilience and resilience enhancement. You know, one thing that occurs to me, and, and it's, I'm not even sure how to articulate it well, I guess you were talking about, you know, reading the book, The End of Trauma and Smiling, and that all of us probably get with that. I also was reminded of maybe some comments from, from colleagues that have said, you know, when we think about resilience and resilience training, one of the concerns that comes up is that if we insulate the the warrior from the horrors of war, or we insulate leadership from the horrors of war, then that in some ways, you know, like makes it easier to engage in war. And, you know, just kind of these worries that, I don't know, that this particular colleague I'm thinking of in particular was referencing a Star Trek episode, the original series Star Trek <laughs> episode. And it, you know, it made sense. I don't, I don't know that I can describe the episode here. But, you know, if you're a Trekkie like me, go find it. Anyway, the, the, the thought though, just being that resilience, maybe, maybe we, you know, maybe we are also depriving ourselves of something important, but as you're describing this process, teaching, you know, psychological flexibility skills, um, it occurs to me that in some ways that really gets around or, 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 or doesn't fall victim to that concern. Cause we're not talking about insulating people from mm -hmm. their experience. We're talking about helping them develop skills in which they can engage mm -hmm. in a workable way instead of, you know, blocking mm -hmm. it out, just kind of mm -hmm. being an automaton. So it, it, it just occurred to me as you were describing kind of those processes that mm -hmm. like, you know, maybe this is part of that, that the, the, a more workable approach to resilience and, and helping um, our, our warriors to, you know, do the jobs that they do so well and still, you know, be healthy. Mm -hmm. I, I think you're right. I think it, it, in a way, when, when you said insulated, I, I had the, the thought that that's the opposite, the exact right, opposite right. Of, of what this route to resilience or this resilience enhancement process is. Insulation is sort of contextual insensitivity. Absolutely. Um, 
And um, this is all about contextual sensitivity and flexible adaptation. Um, so, you know, I'm not saying that, that we should weaken or soften or dilute our training of our warriors. Um, we don't have to in this model. Right. Um, we, we, can, we can train them with a, a, a host of highly effective strategies um, that are understood as being essential for that context, while also training the flexibility to understand that in another context, those very same skills, those very same behaviors um, may not be adaptive, may not be healthy or helpful, and may not even be values aligned. Right. I think the other critique that I'm interested in hearing you think through with this model is, you know, sort of the blame that came along with if you're not resilient or, you know, we have all these resiliency training programs, which kind of gave this message that we can we can train you to be resilient and not experiences. Right. And so, you know, how how would you you know that that if I if I don't master that and I, and I get quote unquote broken, um, I, when I'm not resilient, um, I'm not flexible. How do you, you know, how do you talk yeah. or think about that? Yeah. So I think a couple of things come to mind. One is in all of my work in clinical contexts, I have never, I, I'm confident, even though I can't remember every single person, I'm confident in saying I have never met somebody who is not resilient but we're not resilient in at least one context. Who's not highly uh, attuned, highly um, capable, highly skilled in that context. Um, so resilience is not an all or nothing concept. And, and so I think that is one way to get around that, that concern um, and, and the, the, the shaming quality of that is pointing to where folks have been um, highly uh, adaptable or highly successful in one context. Um, where I see it most frequently is with my career military folks, career infantry folks. They were tough. They were strong. They were, you name it. And now they're suffering if they're in my office anyway. And typically what that reflects is a loss of flexibility. You know, if you don't, you don't stretch your body, it becomes more rigid over time. And so um, in that case, they were, they were sort of stuck in one position, one posture for a long time because it worked, but now they've, they've grown rigid. And so our, our goal is to foster that flexibility. I like that a lot. So Wyatt, it's been so great to have you on the podcast. I am really excited about your bold vision for psychological flexibility training. Uh, and I'm excited that you made that bold statement on our, our podcast. So when that happens, you know, we can say that we heard it first <laughs> here on Practical for Your Practice. We have the scoop. And um, while we're waiting for that to happen, which might be a couple of years out, mm -hmm. uh, do you have any, you know, just a couple of pieces of actionable intel, bits of advice that our listeners can use if they would like to start to bring in maybe some of the principles of psychological flexibility in their work with members of the military to boost resilience? Definitely. I, this seems especially important because, like I said, the, 
the training protocol or program is a little ways out. So I thought about this before I got here today. What what can we do now? So um, the first thing that came to my mind is around sort of conceptualization. So for those of us working in clinical contexts, hopefully our case conceptualization is a crucial part of what we do, informs our um, inter interventions. Um, and so what I would advocate is that we fold into that conceptualization an understanding of sort of the resilience uh, training programs that, that our patients, our clients have participated in. So, I mean, even more broadly than that, sort of the indoctrination training experiences that our military personnel have established a very context-specific, context-constrained sort of coping style. And then upon redeployment or even separation, there's really no release from that rigidity. There's no training in how to um, release that posture, how to open up um, and, and, and release that suppression, emotional suppression in a workable way. So being aware of that broad sort of cultural experience, then being aware, you know, familiarizing yourself with the resilience training programs that your patients may have participated in during their military service, I think will, will support your case conceptualization and therefore necessarily your, um, your intervention. I mean, beyond that, you know, what are the messages your patient got growing up about how to handle adversity? Does it suck it up and tough it out? Um, so, you know, we can take this lens that, I, that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to, to build here for us and look through that at childhood experiences and uh, military culture, resilience enhancement training. And it will give us, I think, a really important insight into the quality of our patient's suffering. Our listeners can't see it, but we're all smiling and nodding. So <laughs> I think I have the ball. Can I, can I, can I give the last ball? I've been like waiting maybe, for maybe. it. Yes. I, I don't know. This might, this might be, this might not be right, but you know, when we're looking at sort of previous models of resilience of just bounce back, it was just mm -hmm. about the ball bouncing back, but here we're, you know, and I, I have a 12 year old son and balls bouncing or things that happen in my house often, but, you know, kind of taking the context part is like, what's the room, what's around, what's the furniture, what, what things could it bounce off of? Um, mm -hmm. And the repertoire of behaviors are, how are you going to drop it or, or chuck it or throw it? Uh, again, kind of depending on the context and the feedback you get from where it's headed. I don't know. Maybe that's a little too many bouncing balls. Maybe I missed something, but that in my I can see in my head sort of sort of that it's not just, you know, bounce the ball back. It's, you know, what's the context? Where are you? What's around you? What are your options for how you want to bounce back? And if it goes sideways, how are you going to be okay with that and pick it up and, and bounce it a different way, maybe? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, probably if your your kid um, throws a ball in the house, bounces a ball. And in I the just house, say, stop throwing the ball in the house. But notice what you <laughs> added to that statement, context. You didn't say stop throwing the ball. But that would be context insensitivity. You said stop throwing the ball in the house. Um, and so that's that's what we want people to understand. And that's how we facilitate resilience is helping them to understand that context. 
don't bounce the ball in the house, but please do bounce the ball on the basketball court, you know, in the field. Um, and, and so I think that, you know, we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We can keep some of the skills that, that we've been training um, uh, with, our, with our military personnel, um, but we just need to add this context sensitivity and, and also probably augment that, that repertoire just a bit by opening up that acceptance side. So, um, you know, to that end, I'll, I'll just, I'll add one more note and that is I advocate participating in ACT trainings. So while this work is not um, acceptance and commitment therapy per se, I mean, every bit of it, every, every um, intervention is, is rooted in the well-established um, science behind acceptance and commitment therapy. So um, if you want to you know, engage some of these processes with your patients who are in the midst of suffering, or um, if you have the opportunity to do some preventative work, um, work to help folks um, you know, stay out of suffering, then I, I think that there uh, is a lot of promise inside of getting some familiarity and some comfort with um, ACT training. Any particular resources or directions you'd like to head uh, folks head in to, uh, to get some more of that training in ACT and learn more about psychological flexibility? Well, you know, I hear that there's somebody doing some training for CDP in acceptance and commitment therapy. I hear they do a pretty good job. That um, guy, I don't know. <laughs> Any other resources? Any good ones? Yeah, yeah. We will. We will put a. We will put a link in the in the show notes to CDP does train act, and they do fill it pretty quick because mm -hmm. it is a popular program. And yeah, yeah, keep your eyes modest. open. And we will certainly put a link to the um, the. The, uh, the webinar that Wyatt and I have mentioned a couple of times um, that we did for CDP. I happen to be there, mm -hmm. but um, to get to hear Dr. Evans talk about those concepts in more depth, we've also got a couple of little role plays in there to demonstrate how you might bring some of the processes in. Um, I think it's a nice primer too. Mm -hmm. And then just one more, because I said I would circle back around to it, contextualscience.org, the website for um, ACBS. Um, my favorite thing about the contextual science community is just how um, open and, and, and sharing and, and, and giving this community is. You're not going to find a lot of information that is, is held, held tightly and is secret. There are, there are trainings, there are resources, there are books, like whole books. Um, there's all sorts of information um, at ACBS's website. Um, some of it is for members only, but, you know, our dues in ACBS are values-based, um, meaning that, you know, you, you will, you know, pay what, what you think the membership is worth at that time or what you're capable of paying, um, no more. And so it, it's, you know, if you're just looking to get some more um, information, looking to get some more exposure, check it out, sign up, and then if it proves to be helpful, stick around. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Practical for Your Practice, Wyatt. Thank you all so much for having me for the discussion and I look forward to maybe sharing an update with you all sometime in the future. Yeah, that would be Definitely. fantastic. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. Well, thanks for joining us for Practical Practice. We'll see you next time. Bye, all. Bye.
Thanks for listening to Practical for Your Practice. Please feel free to subscribe, rate, and join in on the conversation in the comments. Until next time.